Hello and welcome to Frankly Speaking, where we dive deep into regional headlines. I speak with leading policymakers and business leaders. I am Katie Jensen. On this episode of Frankly Speaking, we hear from Professor Yossi Merkelberg, an Associate Fellow for the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House. We ask him what it will take to normalize diplomatic ties between Saudi and Israel if Joe Biden has any chance of achieving peace in the Middle East before the elections and whether Palestinians could finally be guaranteed their own state. Professor Meckelberg, thank you for joining us today on Frankly Speaking. Now, there has been plenty of talk recently about U.S. efforts to normalize ties between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Now, that is provided that Israel adheres to the main Saudi condition, which is a just solution that the Palestinians accept. But frankly speaking, is this even remotely possible with the current Israeli ultra-right-wing government we have today? Hello, thank you for having me. Now, I think normalization between uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel is something that no doubt will stabilize uh, the, the region and we would like to see, but I don't think this is the right time for this to happen on, on all fronts. And I think we need to go back 20 years and I think it's actually uh, Saudi Arabia at the time set the right tone. Normalization with, with Israel is something that is desirable, it's something that is possible, but at the same time, there is one condition, and the condition is that Israel and Palestinians resolve all their outstanding issue. Just remind the, 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 the viewers that this, in 2002, it was at the height of, of, of the Second Intifada, which, you know, this didn't look possible, but it could have been a real breakthrough with the right approach by, by, by Riyadh. Israel actually rejected rejected the, the offer that was translated into the Beirut Declaration. I think this is as relevant today as it was relevant 21 years ago, and possibly that's that's the kind should be the direction. Now, I can see an Israeli government that is ready to make any progress on the Palestinian issue. If at all, it will only get worse. Israel is in a huge crisis, domestic crisis with it. The, the, the judicial overhauling or coup that is taking place, hundreds of thousands of people are in the streets, and at the same time, settlements are expanding. As you mentioned, this is the most ultra-right uh, government in Israel history. So normalization, yes, but probably not now. Well, you say this is not the right time for the deal. And I think you make an interesting point because the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman, he recently wrote, saying that this potential deal will force the right-wing extremists within Netanyahu's government to have to choose between either annexing Gaza or accepting peace with Saudi Arabia. Now, this will ultimately lead to peace with the entire Arab and Muslim world. So I have to ask, why do you think that anyone within their right mind would miss out on such an incredible opportunity? Well, it's interesting because it was Thomas Friedman, they broke the news at the time uh, that's, you know, about the, the Saudi initiative, peace initiative. Well, it's always a time to, to make peace. We would like to see peace and normalization and definitely normalization between 
between Israel and Saudi Arabia that also could lead for lead to peace between Israel and Palestinians. You know, this is this is this is the dream. But I think what probably if if interpreted what what uh, Thomas Friedman is, is is saying that it's possible to change the mind of the, the very right wing, the Zionist religion party, people like Itamar Ben Gvir and Bezal Smotrich and their supporters, that they will exchange the concessions that need to be made for peace for this kind of normalization and acceptance in, in, in the region. You know, if he's right and this is possible, why not? But I can't see this happening. Bear in mind, uh, when the Abraham Accords were signed, Netanyahu was a powerful leader. Now he is at its weakest point. He's a weak leader held hostage, willing hostage, by, by, by the right wing because of his corruption trial. He can't afford the government to fall. While other parties say, as long as, as, as Netanyahu is heading the Likud, they won't, cho- won't join the, the, the government. Now, there might be a constellation in which the other parties, Yair Lapid, Benny Gantz, will say, if there is a real offer from Riyadh on the table, for normalization and exchange of peace, and Netanyahu with the Palestinians, and Netanyahu accepted, they will give up their principal view on his corruption trial, not joining a government led by a defendant and join the government. But and I, that's and I think this is to one be of the, seen. I think this is one of the big issues because we're now seeing this extreme right-wing politics within everyday politics. Now, you say Netanyahu himself is a weak leader and there's no doubt that relations between President Biden and Netanyahu haven't been great. The US has given a, a number of very clear signals it does not approve of what the current Israeli government is doing. So I have to wonder, with these kinds of tensions in place, how much sway does Washington actually have over Israel today? How can it convince Netanyahu to take this offer from Saudi Arabia and actually present meaningful concessions to the Palestinians? You see, in in principle, Washington can have great influence way over Israel because of the close relationship, the alliance between the two countries. It, It provides Israel with at least $3 billion a year in military aid and intelligence cooperation and supporting the United Nations. Otherwise, the Palestinian state would have long been recognized in the Security Council. There was a range. But can you see this happening? They're using this influence or power over Israel during election year. I can see this actually happening. Potentially, yes, there is enough Lever for the United States to to convince Israel to do certain things, but we see that even when Biden, already seven months into the Israeli government, hasn't invited Netanyahu to visit Washington, still not has happened. What we see is the opposite in the streets. We see more and more uh, uh, police and security forces beating up uh, demonstrators that are trying to defend democracy. You see how much power there is in the hands of the of, of, of the right, of the ultra-right in Israel. And Netanyahu's main concern is to find a way to derail this corruption trial and preventing potentially going to jail. 
And I think you're right. But in many ways, it does feel like Netanyahu wants this deal to be his legacy. But even if he does make these concessions to the Palestinians, is he not risking uh, the support of his uh, of his cabinet, as you've mentioned there before, and potentially even suffering the, the same fate uh, of former Prime Minister Rabin when he was assassinated by extremists close to 30 years ago? And bear in mind that the person that incited against Rabin at the time was, was Netanyahu himself. That's the way he built his, 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 his way. He built his way to the prime minister office. But but beyond that, yes, Netanyahu would like to to leave a legacy of of peace with with a normalization with Saudi Arabia and complete the Abraham Accord by 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 doing that. What intervenes in all of this is, of course, the corruption right? and his inability to form a different government than the one he, he formed six seven months ago. He doesn't want to, to actually, not the Bank Vir, not the Smotrich, you know, the ultra-right, to share government, to share power with them, because he knows the consequences domestically and internationally. But this is not his main consideration right now. And since Biden can't stop the, 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 the trial, and, and, and no other member of the international community, this takes precedence of the legacy. But, you know, in, in almost... Uh, the, in an ironic way, Netanyahu already is, is dreaming in public about having trains going all the way to Jeddah and Riyadh, but he forgets that it comes with certain things, certain concessions that he has to make until this becomes a reality. So you feel that until Netanyahu's corruption trial is done, until that's off the table, you feel that there's no way we will see any progression uh, between normalisation with a solution for the Palestinians, uh, for normalisation between Saudi and Israel. Is that what you're saying? I think that's what needs to happen there is that in order for this to happen is for the political system in Israel to decide that the corruption trial is secondary, and I'm not so sure it's desirable, but the, 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 the corruption trial is secondary to normalizations with Saudi Arabia. In other words, the other parties that refuse to sit, you know, led by Benny Gantz and, and, and Yair Lapid and Gidon Saar and Avigdor Lieberman, are ready actually to change their mind and say, all right, under these circumstances, this is too important for the future in Israel. This is ensuring Israel's security and prosperity in the long run. And if we need to sit in government share power with a corrupt leader, uh, so be it. But this will force them to climb down from a very, very cold tree that they, you know, for ran on this platform for a few elections. So this is, I think, the only possibility. Or the government collapses and new elections and different parties come to power. But as long, again, if Netanyahu has to make a decision between potentially going to jail, keep the, the, the corruption trial going, or normalization, I guess that from the way that he has behaved thus far, that is, he will, will probably compromise Israel, you know, strategic interests. So you feel that normalization between Saudi and Israel is off the table, at least one that Netanyahu has his corruption trial to worry about. So let's talk about the everyday Israelis. Where do you think that most Israelis stand when it comes to resolving the conflicts with the Palestinians? Uh, uh, we often hear of Israeli fear that Arabs want to throw all of the Jews in the sea and erase Israel off the map. But I have to to ask, isn't that exactly what Israel's current finance minister, Bazal al-Smotrich, is calling for towards the Palestinians? 
I think right now public opinion can be swayed in, in either direction. I think back in the 70s and 80s, I think all this notion of all the Arab countries and people wants to throw Israelis to the, to the sea uh, to hold basically on the discourse in Israel. Since then, Israel signed peace agreement with Egypt and Jordan and then normalized relations with other countries. So I think this can change very quickly. And we saw it 30 years ago with the Oslo agreement for no support for a two-state solution, not even mentioning two-state solution, got into actually a majority, steady majority that supported it, by the way, on both, on both sides. And surprise, surprise, even today, it's in the high 40s that, that on, both, on both communities, the Israelis and Palestinians, still support two-state solution at the point that it looks almost unlikely. The things, you know, I think leaders should not look all the time at public opinion polls. They should actually look into the future, gaze into the future, and 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 think what's good for their for their countries and communities. I, I, I think normalization again, it, it 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 it's possible if certain conditions change. At the same time, I think most of the Israeli public bear in mind they reject the the, the judicial. A coup, as it suggests by, by, by the government. Likud supporters are actually abandoning uh, Likud right now. So the possibility of normalization with, with Saudi Arabia would be very, very attractive for more Israelis, and more and more will understand that in order for this to happen, a concession on the Palestinian issues uh, needs to be take, take place. Well, you say governments need to look to the future and think about what is best for that country. Uh, I, surely uh, it doesn't really feel like that's happening at the moment when we consider some of the reforms that have been passed by Israel government this year. And, and the reforms have been passed despite months of weekly protests and despite hundreds and thousands of the protesters uh, demanding for change. What are your thoughts of the laws that have been passed so far? And do you think there is any chance of them being reversed in the future? I think, first of all, no doubt in my mind that the, the direction this government is taking is towards more and more uh, semi-democracy, towards authoritarian uh, regime. If you start, especially in the parliamentary uh, system, which the, the checks and balances and separation of powers is not as in a, in a presidential democratic system, because the, the legislator is the, is the one that supports the government because you need to build a coalition within the legislature. So anyway, there is a majority for the government, the executive, <laughs> between the three branches. So the branches that, that protects and defends uh, the democracy, and the, the accountability, and, and to make sure that governments are not doing things with uh, impunity, is the, the judiciary. And exactly that's why this government hates so much the, the judiciary because it won't let it make an appointment that are corrupt. It won't let it deal with the West Bank the way that it won't deal with the Palestinians with complete impunity. So there is a real danger and we see step by step, step by step, already after the passing of legislation last week about you know, revoking the reasonableness uh, uh, standard, that the coalition offers all sorts of put on the table and a, and a suite of different of different uh, bills that will compromise Israel democracy. But on the other hand, if you ask me if I'm optimistic, I, I must admit I've never seen, I never thought I'd see so many people, and for 30, 31 weeks, 
our industry demonstrating started during the weekends and on, on Saturday nights and now it's almost every day demonstrating protesting everywhere and they, they won't let it happen so something something we have to give bear in mind the Israel Knesset in, is in recess right now that's why the push to pass the legislation last week both sides have time to to, to think about the next steps and for what I see I that definitely the pro-democracy uh, pro forces are, are adamant Certainly they have they have been calls for change. We mentioned the protesters. We mentioned the big concerns uh, about the fact that these reforms have weakened uh, the judicial uh, system, which is the very thing, the very tool for keeping the government's uh, power in check. So what do these reforms mean for the Palestinians and for the 1948 Arabs? Yeah, one of the interesting things that the, the Israeli Palestinians don't 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 participate in this because they don't believe that any government will actually look after their human rights, well-being, or prosperity. This is the experience of of 75 years of of, of Israel independence, but they are going to be the first affected by it, and we saw it already with uh, five years ago the the nation-state law that uh, basically downgraded the, the, the status of Israeli Palestinians, including the, the, Arab, the Arabic language and, and so on and so forth. So on, on, on the one side of the green line, we probably will see more discrimination of, of Israeli Palestinians. But then it will let even more the, the Israeli security forces and the settlers to be having com with complete impunity. You know, there is hardly talk in, 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 in the international media about settler violence. But this is a daily occurrence of settler violence, of cutting olive trees, of cutting pipes, of attacking innocent Palestinians. And without the, the, the Supreme Court, who is going to protect the Palestinians? And, and about expansion of settlement and grabbing more, more land in the West Bank, which should make also a two-state solution, if there is still a possibility, a complete uh, pipe dream. Let me just one say one thing about the Supreme Court in Israel. As much as I would like to see that this legislation what harm the Supreme Court in Israel, and it's a bastion of democracy in Israel, it has never been as bastion of, bastion of the, pr protecting Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and Gaza, the way it protected the rights of Israeli within the Green Line. And I think one of my conclusions and some of others is you can't have democracy on one side of the Green Line and the military, military rule on the other side. And I think you make a very interesting point there because uh, we mentioned a little bit earlier, Israel has long uh, proudly declared it is the only true democracy in the region. So do you think uh, do you think the violence against the Palestinians, but particularly these changes to the reforms, do you think the reforms uh, particularly show that Israel can no longer hold claim to this idea? I think it's a very fragile democracy at the moment. It would never be... A, a perfect democracy. And definitely since uh, 1967 with the occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, so the Golanites, and, and imposing military uh, rule on, on millions of people, this is, this is a, a democracy with, with a question mark. But having said that, many millions of, of Israelis, those who carry uh, Israeli or have Israeli citizenship, uh, enjoy all in all uh, the democratic system. Uh, with, again, with some caveats when it comes to Israeli-Palestinians. Uh, they enjoyed most of it, but not uh, all of it.
Sure, now, but also I think democracy we, we, for one half of the population certainly doesn't guarantee democracy uh, for all. But, but uh, again, the minute that millions of people are living, you know, under, under military law and don't enjoy the same rights of people that live basically five minutes away with them, they can see them from their windows, it's bound to compromise what is a democracy and the quality of, of democracy. What we see now, it's this, what happens in, in the West Bank creeping inside Israeli society. And that's the first time that hundreds and hundreds of, of people protesting. But even now, most of them refuse to see the connection between the occupation and what happens in Israel. And they don't like when we are mentioning it. And I think they are making a big mistake in that. Well, let's talk a little bit more widely about some other events that have been taking place in the region, uh, particularly the peace deal between Saudi and Iran that was brokered by China and took place in March this year. I'm sure that caught Israel by surprise. How is the deal being perceived there? Yeah, it's interesting. I think, first of all, this was a very positive development. But, you know, in all my talks with, with people that experts on, on, on Middle East and strategists in Israel, there was an assumption, a wrong one, and the one way otherwise, that the Middle East was divided you know, in, in, in recent years or recent decades in such a clear way that it's unchangeable, that there is Iran and its allies on, the, on one way, and then there is the Gulf and Israel and the country on the other side. And this is not going to change. So basically, Israel is on the right side of history. And whatever happens, uh, whether it's their normalization or less formal relations, between Israel and some of the Gulf states, including Saudi Arabia, the basic tenets of this strategic cooperation is not going to change. And that's what, and I heard it two weeks, maybe days before the same kind of argument before the, the, the deal between Iran and, and, and Saudi Arabia was, was, was agreed, including, by the way, not expecting that China is going to be the, 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 the broker in this, in this deal. So this was code and caught Israel by surprise, but also I think there is, there is a war in, in Israel. What does it mean vis-a-vis -vis Iran in, in the region, whether it's in Syria or Lebanon, but definitely when it comes to the development of nuclear capabilities. I think it certainly rids Israel of a card that it's played for so long with Arab countries and the idea that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Do you think this deal would last though? I think the, the deal will last because there, as long as every, every, any other deal, as long as both sides have interest in that, it will last. And, you know, my reading of the situation that, that, that both Riyadh and, and Tehran have interest in, 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 in this deal. It has a lot to do also with the role of external forces, especially the United States, which is becoming less and less a reliable ally. So this deal actually made a lot of sense. It doesn't mean, and, and I think our, our, our viewers know that, that it makes, makes Iran and Saudi Arabia uh, any closer. But they both recognize that their interest is averting a direct, direct conflict. So it made a lot of sense. It doesn't stop also any of the, of, 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 of the countries to cooperate with Israel when there is an interest to do so. And I think this is exactly the trick that, that, that Israel missed because they thought it was a zero-sum game. And by there's nothing in the Middle East which is a zero-sum game.
Okay, interesting. So you felt Israel has missed an opportunity there. Uh, another admission we've recently seen has been the readmission of Syria into the Arab League. What are your thoughts on that announcement? Well, while I understand the logic of, of, of that, and, you know, when we look at the need, Syria no doubt should be part of, of, of the Arab League. And I think not having Syria part of it caused harm. And we see, for instance, with with the issue of stream of refugee, or we see the smuggling of, 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 of drugs and, and border security, all of this makes sense. My qualms with this, it should have not been done while President Assad is still in power. Because I think this compromises the credibility of the Arab League. Because for, for more than 10 years, most of the Arab League said that they won't deal, not with Syria, but with Bashar al-Assad, because 600,000 people probably paid with their life as a result of his, of, of his conduct of, of, of the conflict within uh, uh, Syria. Half of the population has been displaced. So what is the message from the Arab League to the rest of the region of the world by accepting Bashar al-Assad? So from real politics, I understand it. And also the case of of Syria needs the, the, the Arab League and, and to, to rebuild Syria. I think from a moral point of view, but also long-term political uh, consideration of how to deal with people that have so much blood on their hands, I think this is very problematic. But many argue that the Assad regime has been Israel's best secret ally, has protected its border for decades. Do you think that a stronger Assad regime benefits Israel's national security as well? I agree, but the fact that not only that uh, keeping the border since 1973, first uh, is, is, is father and then him, it's, it's an asset for Israel. But we see obviously the, uh, the transfer of weapons from Iran to the Hezbollah. And, you know, one day Israel might be in a position to face all of these advanced weapons in the hands of the, of, of the Hezbollah in, in, in Lebanon. And we see tensions mounting on the border and also the language, which is becoming more and more vitriolic between, between uh, Israel and, and the Hezbollah and Hassan Nasrallah. So I think, you know, maybe in the short term. But again, it's not the point is, yes, we can look at real politics and short term uh, politics in this sense. But the question, I think, for the entire region, whether it's right to change the views about someone like Bashar al-Assad, considering what happened in the last... 12, 13 years uh, or not. My answer, I think maybe finding a way that won't legitimize Syria. Syria is, is, is part of the, of, of the region, but being very careful not to legitimize someone like Hafez al-Assad, uh, Bashar al-Assad, forgive me. Okay, so you say Syria should have been readmitted to the Arab League, but not under the Assad regime. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Abraham Accords. This is something that Israel has been directly involved with. Now, I saw that a recent Washington Institute poll showed that there'd been a drop in support uh, from Gulf Arabs when compared to last year. How do you explain this? What do you think are the reasons uh, behind it? And do you feel that the Accords have made Israel less or more aggressive towards Palestinians? It takes me back, remember, being called by, by the media when it was, you know, the Abraham Accords was signed and said, is it a cause of celebration? And in normalization, 
is a cause of celebration because we want to see in the international arena uh, countries get along with one another and reduce tensions. This, on this sense, it was a positive, a, a positive development, but it left out the Palestinian issue. And this was the elephant in the room and remains the elephant in the room. And it takes us, you know, our conversation about normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. There will never be full normalization, even if it's signed, but between people, as long as the Palestinian issue is still there. And what many, you know, in the, 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 especially in the UAE, but in Bahrain, in Morocco, are, are, are seeing is that instead of Israel using it as an opportunity, feel more secure, maybe to take even more risk vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians, they take it as a carte blanche, the, the interpretation, look, the way they see it, the Arab world doesn't care about the Palestinians anymore. We can get normalization for free. We can announce almost other week about more thousands and thousands of housing units in the settlements, and we can dispossess people from, you know, whether in Hal al-Ahmar or in Silwan in Jerusalem on Sheikh Jarrah, and we can still get normalization. And I think people, there was an excitement, there was an enthusiasm about it at, 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 at the beginning because there are a lot of potential for cooperation, collaboration, but the Palestinian issue is still there. And I think that's the big issue. And I think that's why we have seen Saudi for such a long time insist that in order to have normalization with Israel, that there must be a just two-state solution for the, the Palestinians. And I think that's been different to what we've seen from other countries. Uh, now, we have seen that the UAE, Bahrain, Morocco and Sudan, they obviously uh, signed uh, uh, peace deals with Israel in order to normalise ties. But before that, we saw Egypt and Jordan also sign uh, a deal with Israel. But there doesn't seem to be much progress that's been made since then. So why do you think that the Jordanian and Egyptian peace deals lack the, uh, the warmth that, say, the Moroccan or UAE versions enjoy? Yeah, it's, I think it all took place in different eras and, 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 and different contexts. Egypt knew exactly under uh, President Saada what it wanted to achieve, and they got the Sinai Peninsula back. So they were happy at the time. Uh, to sideline the Palestinian issue, to get their territory back. And, and, and at the same time, it evolved into strategic cooperation. The peace agreement with Jordan took place when we were all very hopeful about peace with the Palestinians. It happened almost immediately after the Oslo agreement, and we never envisaged that 30 years later, <laughs> the, the Palestinian issue, the conflict between the Israeli-Palestinian will still be, be, be with us. So this was a different context. The normalization took in a different context altogether because it was obvious that the Israeli-Palestinian issue uh, is, is in complete impasse. And there is no way out because only only, only a few weeks earlier, we all thought before the Abraham Accord was signed that Israel would annex at least 20% of, of, of the West Bank. At least the Abraham Accord stopped it uh, uh, for a while. But what transpired in the meantime, that it was not, if anyone thought while signing that, it would encourage Israel to feel more secure and make concessions towards the Palestinians, it's still there. And I think this is one of the breaks on the ability not only to sign normalization, but to achieve full normalization.
between the between the people. And I think this remains a big issue again to refer back to that Washington Institute poll. Uh, it found that more than 60% of Palestinians are actually opposed to the Abraham Accords and the majority of it say is it's made Israel more aggressive. Another 40% say there has been no change. So uh, certainly no easy answers there. Um, but Professor, we're almost out of time. Just one final question I wanted to ask you, and this is purely out of curiosity. Uh, I understand that you're also an expert in Cuba. So I have to ask how and why exactly did that happen? So in my younger year as a research student, I, I researched revolutions and mainly spe specializing in US foreign policy towards revolution and why the United States fell in its relations with revolution. And I compared between US foreign policy towards the Iranian revolution and the Cuban revolution. Uh, it's for obvious reason was easier for me to travel to Cuba. And not only I traveled to Cuba, I, I think I quite fell in love with Cuba, which is a wonderful country with wonderful people. So I traveled quite a lot to Cuba and, you know, Cuba has its, its own issues, but it's a fascinating country. And, you know, if you try to test also American foreign policy and sometimes how it fails miserably, the relations between the United States and Cuba is a great, uh, it's a great example. So I keep following what's happening in, in Cuba, couldn't visit during the COVID pandemic, but also, you know, Cuba is in my heart and, and see what's happening there. Well, it's certainly a fascinating subject as well. Professor, thank you so much for your insights today. It uh, feels like ultimately uh, you say we're not going to be seeing normalisation between Saudi and between Israel, at least certainly while uh, Netanyahu has a corruption trial on his hands. But really appreciate your thoughts today. So thank you for joining us. Thank you.